This is the Fun Logic Science Show. Don't double X. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. Good morning and welcome to Fuzzy Logic here on Community Radio, 2XX 98.3 FM. I'm Eamon, your host for today, and joining me, we have a really big cast in uh, the studio today. We've uh, got Broderick, um, who's on today. Welcome, good, Broderick. Good morning, Eamon. And uh, we also have Pallavi. Uh, hi, hi, everybody. Good morning to everyone. And we have actually have a very, very special guest uh, on the show today. We have uh, Sonny Forsyth from Abundant Water. Welcome, Sonny. Thank you. Good morning. Well, we'll be uh, talking uh, quite a bit about uh, water today. Um, obviously, uh, such a critical resource uh, to our survival. And uh, uh, quite a few other associated stories that, that uh, have been going with that. Um, obviously, quite a few things have been happening uh, in the world of science uh, during the week. But uh, let's start off with uh, some of the stories that, which have been happening in the world of science. Uh, Broderick, do you have any material for us today? Yeah, well, we've got quite a bit about uh, water today, and um, one of the most important things, I suppose, with water is having a, a pure water sample, and we'll be talking to Sunny later on about some of the methods abundant water use to purify water um, in third world countries. But to start with, something out of uh, ANU here in Canberra is a new uh, chemical treatment for water um, that's come out of the chemistry department here, basically using a, a simple compound, an inorganic compound called silver orthophosphate to oxidise water um, and it's using just the power of light. So basically the light is uh, catalyzing the reaction, it's helping the reaction to go along and it's converting the energy from the sun uh, to break down contaminants in the water. Basically uh, it's, a, it's a using um, renewable source of energy to break down the water in the solar power rather than using huge amounts of electricity and other non-renewable energies to break it down. And uh, this uh, discovery uh, has huge applications um, in uh, worldwide to be able to have a more energy-efficient manner to, uh, to clean up the water. Um, another similar thing that's come out at the moment too, uh, not from Canberra, but rather from the US and uh, China, is uh, nanoparticles doing a similar sort of job, so a different sort of compound, but doing the same sort of thing, this time uh, using titanium oxide fibres impregnated with nitrogen. Um, and in this case, it's uh, light once again, but uh, rather than being uh, UV light from the sun, it it's, it's does, does it using visible light, which is really important because uh, UV light you know, accounts for just 5% of the light that we get from the sun. So using visible light, uh, which accounts for almost half of the light we get from the sun, is, is much better. And this uh, catalyst does that, and it uh, basically, you know, the catalyst uh, creates the reaction with the titanium oxide fibres and nitrogen. Uh, when the light hits the grid, a positive charge is created, splitting the water molecules and producing um, a substance, the positive charge, deadly to microbes. So basically we're, we're getting rid of all the, the bacteria and microbes in the water, stuff like uh, E. coli and that sort of thing. But the most important part of this, I suppose, is that 
you don't actually have to have light to keep it going. Um, you know, after 10 hours under, under artificial light conditions, which would be, you know, your sort of daytime period, the solution was placed in the dark when they were experimenting. And basically, the catalyst continued to kill bacteria for 24 hours in the dark, um, which I suppose is, is really important to, to keep this process going throughout the night as well. So there are, so there's a, a couple of new um, chemical-based solutions for purifying water and uh, helping us to be able to drink clean, healthy water rather than bacteria-infested stuff. Thanks, Patrick. Um, one thing I found out uh, years ago, my dad uh, was on uh, the town city council and one of the committees he was on uh, was about water. And uh, over the years I found it really, really amazing, man, just how much effort goes into uh, getting water saved from well, it's source with a dam or a river, and actually bringing it up to standard, like putting all, uh, all the treatment that goes into it, uh, I mean, like chlorination, uh, even distribution. I mean, like, it just uh, takes um, so much uh, infrastructure and, and effort. I mean, no, we, I mean it's um, so easy that we uh, uh, take water so much again that we just turn on a tap and there it is. And it's actually clean water. I mean, like, um, in uh, developing countries, I mean, they, they certainly don't have that... Uh, option i mean like uh people have to uh, walk for like kilometers uh, just to get uh, any type of water and obviously in a uh well areas which have uh, say the rainfall concentrated in only like a couple of months of the year and th- the rest of the time there's just nothing there really is a huge issue that it, uh, uh that people have to face well but uh just related to that um you're talking about uh Light and how they be used to treat water. Um, perhaps I just relate that I, uh, I had a quick look at about a uh, story about how ultraviolet life may have actually triggered light, uh, tr- uh, triggered life. Um, and a blast of uh, ultraviolet light may have helped to create uh, some important molecular building blocks, uh, which are very necessary to, to life. Now, uh, a team of researchers from Georgia Tech in uh, Atlanta and University of Roma, La Sapienza. Uh, reported their findings in uh, last week's issue of uh, Chem Biochem. And the research demonstrated a more complex scenario for curating RNA, that's ribose nucleic acid, uh, which, is be, which is believed to be the early coding system for life. And that opens a wider door for life's evolution not only on Earth, but possibly elsewhere in the solar system and beyond. The research is focused on the molecular uh, ferment, uh, formamide, uh, the simplest structure containing the required four building blocks of life, that's carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen. And previous studies have already uh, shown how heating formamide in a mineral stew creates most of the ingredients for ribonucleic acid. Uh, RNA is uh, thought to have uh, served as an early operating system of life, later joined by mo- more robust deoxyribose nucleic acid, or DNA genetic coder. Missing uh, from this uh, from my brew, however, was uh, guanine, one of RNA's uh, four critical uh, ingredients, and the others being adenine, cytosine, and uracil. Uh, one lightning rod for guanine's creation, um, scientists believe, is ultraviolet light. And physics professor Dr. Uh, Thomas Orlando of Georgia Tech says a lot of things can happen when you put a photon into the mix. Now, today, um, Earth's atmosphere blocks most of the UV rays from the sun, but in its early years, the planet lacked ozone and other shielding chemicals from its sky, uh, from skies. The research demonstrated a scenario for creating RNA that would re- not require lots of heat or standing pools of liquid water. The finding also, um, could also mean that conditions for life elsewhere in the solar system may not be as stringent, probably just as well. 
Uh, and Delano says you don't have to be incredible. You don't need to have incredibly special conditions. Um, a lot of people have uh, prebiotic chemistry scenarios that are aqueous based. In this way, uh, water is important, but not as important as formamide, and that's the big change. Science now working to mimic uh, the day-night cycles of solar ultraviolet radiation and adding different minerals to see that changes are resulting in the RNA brew. And Dr. Nicholas Hunt, of jo- head of Georgia Tech's Centre for Chemical Evolution, says what we're looking for is the chemistry that gives us the building blocks of life, and this is a very significant step. And you're listening to Phasiologic, your science on Sunday here on Community Radio 2XX. Well, Broderick, um, perhaps you can help uh, welcome our very special guest to the program. Yeah, well, we do have a, a very important guest here this morning. Sonny Forsyth is an engineer, studied at ANU, and now works with Abundant Water. And we're going to have a bit of a chat today about some of the, the water problems around the world because we talked before about chemical ways of treating water, and that's certainly very applicable in the Western world. But, I mean, is this something that could be taken worldwide and why, why would it or wouldn't it work? Well, I mean, it certainly would need to... Uh, whatever we do, it does need to be taken worldwide. Uh, let's just remind ourselves that they say somewhere between 800 million and 1.1 billion currently lack regular, safe, reliable access to clean drinking water. Uh, and those numbers are set to grow as the uh, poorer, more remote communities experience uh, population growth over the next 20 to 50 years. So it's a big problem. Um, there are certainly many, many different ways that these, um, uh, this, this problem is being dealt with, but with, with, with a billion people currently lacking access, we need to be kind of uh, doing as much as we can. So it's unlikely that one, one particular uh, one technology will hold the solution, but there are going to be p- p- uh, pieces and areas. It's a bit like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, In certain uh, situations, uh, different responses will be appropriate. Um, abundant water, we are focusing on a clay pot uh, uh, technology that came out of the ANU 10 to 15 years ago and it actually uh, focuses on creating a porous ceramic um, most of the problems that you're dealing with with clean drinking water are actually bacteria based so it's, it's diarrhoea, uh, it's killing millions of people a year so if you can remove the bacteria from the water um, then that, that will actually uh, create a clean drinking water source so with a porous ceramic we have... Um, it's like a colander. If you imagine a colander that you use to, um, if you cook pasta, you, you you put it in the colander and the water goes through, but the uh, pasta doesn't. Well, if you had those holes that were small enough to actually be smaller than the bacteria, the water would still pass through, and the bacteria would be trapped in that ceramic uh, medium. And that's what we do. Um, and in a very, some very simple and effective means have been created of actually making a porous ceramic, so it actually can be done in a third world village. Yeah. So in Australia we do have filtration systems and that sort of thing. I know I'm from Adelaide, um, so our drinking water, I mean, it's certainly a lot better than third world, but it doesn't taste fantastic. Mar- marginally. Yeah, yeah. And uh, well, a lot of the, the things they sell in that are, are filtration systems for the water, pure tap, that sort of thing. Um, how, how? I mean, those, those ones are, are pretty good solutions. How is your system different to those sorts of filters? Well, they're certainly fantastic solutions. I mean, they are very effective. Um, <clears throat> the main difference would be that with an appropriate technology, which is what we're talking about, um, it can actually fit into the local community and it can fit into the local kind of uh, technological horizon that you've got. Um, so these these filters, the PuriTap, whatever you have here in Australia, rely on a large uh, logistical infrastructure to maintain them, to, to, to use them, to, to make them. If you go to a third world village where you don't have that, but you have people who have got hand, uh, handy skills, they've got uh, local materials, you must be able to make it, 
use it and maintain it in that local community. Okay, so if we're talking about local stuff, what, what things around the community are you using to make these filters? Okay, uh, good question. Um, this ceramic filter is made from two materials. We're talking about clay and we're talking about, uh, we use coffee grounds at the moment, but it can be any burnout material. Just a bit of an explanation how it's made. If you take powdered clay and you take uh, coffee grounds, for example, uh, both in powder form, you mix them, you get a, you get a good mixture. Um, then you can actually create a uh, a ceramic from that. So you get it wet and you form the you form the shape of the the filter. When you burn that out, that's when the pores or the holes are created in that ceramic. So I guess the important things are if you look at the materials, clay. Uh, we're using something like brick clay. Anywhere that bricks are made, they can be uh, using the same clay. Um, the burnout material, we're using coffee grounds. I mean, clearly coffee grounds aren't available throughout the world, especially when it's an espresso grind. So, I mean, that's very much a, a first world thing. Yeah. Um, but sawdust, uh, crushed uh, crushed charcoal, crushed food scraps, anything that can, can create an organic powder can be used. Um, and then if you, if you start looking at the actual... Um, the actual production of that uh, filter, if it's using... Um, uh, pottery skills, and and there's already a pottery tradition in that local community, it will be understood. It already has a place in that local uh, community. And then if you look at the... Um, if the use is, is simple and it just relies on actually people understanding some fairly basic mechanisms, then it's more likely to be used appropriately. Um, uh, yeah, there's one more thing that... Uh, uh, do you think that uh, a lot of this also has to do with ignorance? Because there's a report that, you know, more people even today die because of... Uh, uh, you know, unhygienic drinking water than all the conflicts in the world combined. So, uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, something as simple as boiling water, you know, I mean, with firewood also can, you know, kind of prevent a lot of disease. So do you think that at a certain level, there's also ignorance, like the governance has not been good enough to tell, let people know how dangerous it can be? Well, that's a fantastic point. Um, absolutely. More violent, uh, water kills more than all forms of violence. That's pretty sobering, really, isn't it? Um, and if... If, if the question is, if boiling is such an easy, commonly understood way of uh, cleaning drinking water, why don't people do it? Well, it's interesting. Um, and I, intuitively, I didn't really know this answer. Um, I'm still not sure that I understand it fully, but I've been to several, many, many uh, uh, rural communities where we've had, had this conversation and they tell me different reasons why they boil or why they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and upon reflection, to me, it looks like this is maybe a 5% uh, technology problem Mm-hmm. and 95% social understanding community uh, problem. Mm-hmm. For example, um, I've spoken to um, indigenous hill tribes, uh, young mothers with, with children, uh, wanting to do the best for their children, of course. Uh, they work in the field during the days, and they come home in the afternoon, and they say, look, if I'm going to boil water, it takes me an hour. Mm-hmm. Get the wood, uh, large pot, supervise the fire. That, that's an hour on top of everything else they're doing. And they say, you know, in the past, we used to drink water and it was okay. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't get us sick all the time. It's only sometimes of the year. So mm-hmm. it's probably going to be okay. So, I mean, I can turn around and say, hey, I know that eating chocolate's probably not the best thing for me, but I still eat it. Or I have friends who smoke who probably know that it's not the best thing for them. Mm-hmm. It's probably much more a situation like that. Okay, so um, <clears throat> oh, excuse, excuse me. Um, so we're taking this uh, the process and trying to teach people, um, educate them about why they need to do it. Um, but how are you getting the the filters themselves out there, like this technology, um, to the people? Are you going and making the filters yourselves? What? Well, that's a good question um, because I I think that 
if, if we say that, uh, for example, Abundant Water's job was to be building filters and delivering them to people, we would say it's a logistical problem. If we can, if we can double our efficiency and halve our costs, then we can, we can be more effective. Um, we're actually taking it more from a training and a community development aspect, which means that we work with um, progressive members of the community, people who are interested, people who already recognise the importance of clean drinking water and people who want to develop a business, and we, we are uh, working with them to allow them to incubate a business to build these filters in their local community. So it's actually about a knowledge sharing and a partnership rather than just coming and giving something from the outside. If we were to be there giving filters to a uh, local community, there'd be a lot of uh, unintended consequences that we'd face. We could be making them dependent. Um, we could be actually worse. We could be subsidising their use, which would mean that as soon as the subsidies ended, people wouldn't wouldn't use them or that people would be using them not because of the benefits that they'd gain, but because of some kind of... They might even be pay, being paid money to use them, which would be kind of counterproductive. Okay. So it's really about a, a process of getting people involved and, and becoming a part of it and taking ownership? Exactly. Okay. Empowerment and ownership. Yeah. Well, the, going back to the science then, if you're getting other people to start making these filters... Yes, how, how are you sure that every time it's going to be filtering the water correctly and, and, and taking out those bacteria? Yes, quality control. Mm. Good question. Now, so we have been, I've been working on the ground in Laos for several years now, two years uh, with this project, and we've spent the last two years taking a Lao traditional potter, so she can make a, a traditional pot that was used as a soup bowl or water storage or that sort of thing. It's a standard um handicraft or an apprenticeship skill across the country and we have worked with her so that she now can take her traditional skills and understanding and build an effective water filter we're in the process now of selecting villagers and potters who she can train with that skill so once again we're, we're taking existing knowledge and understanding and working with that there's still a problem i mean if uh if people could um for example, shorten the process to increase their profits, that would be a problem that would it could expose us to some risks. If there was not in co- uh, complete understanding, that could also be a problem. So it's something that we, we deal with through training and also looking to standardise the process. Um, yeah, what I wanted to ask is, uh, do you think something like this would work uh, in developing countries like, say, India? Because um, as you're talking about pottery, I mean, pottery is, you know, big in uh, rural India. And, uh, you know, maybe if uh, these skills are given to them, maybe, you know, it, it, they could also use them. So do you think something like this can be taken to developing countries and, uh, you know, involve people there as well? Uh, yes. Not only do I think it could be done, I think it should be done. Um, one of the one of the main drivers for me to uh, get involved and really kind of push this project along was that I could see there was such a simple, effective water filtration technology that was available that would allow people to do it for themselves, and it hadn't been the information hadn't been made made available to the people who could make use of that information. So, our aim is to capture the the information, the knowledge from this one project quality control, all these sorts of issues, community engagement, and then provide that as a bit of a a cookbook and a recipe so that other water and sanitation or community organisations can replicate this process in their their projects. Um, Just going back to India, there are some fantastic examples of community development all throughout India. Um, One of my favourite is from the Barefoot College, and they're actually taking illiterate village housewives, no scientific background, reading and writing, can't. They, they, They spend, I think it's three to six months at the Barefoot College Institute, and they teach them the basics of how to make a solar cell from the component level. 
These women use uh, crayon and paper to make their own manuals. They then return to their village and they become solar engineers and are electrifying their villages. We can take that dynamic and apply it to more or less anything. In this case, I think water filters. That sounds absolutely fantastic, and I'm very keen to hear more about the work that Abundant Water is actually doing. But it might be time for a little break and have a, have a song. What, do, what, do you've got, what have you got lined up for us, Eamon? Actually, something a little bit uh, appropriate, uh, Roderick. Um, it's a track by Katie Cunstall, Suddenly I See. And welcome back. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 98.3 FM, 2XX in Canberra. And today we have a very special guest with us, Sonny Forsyth, an engineer working with Abundant Water. And we've been chatting about the fantastic water filter system that Abundant Water is taking around the world, basically using clay to, to purify water in the, the communities that are using it. How big are these filters and you know how quickly can the water pass through for general use? Okay, so let me just clarify. We have uh, one master trainer who's now producing them. Um, we just got test results back that show that this uh, water uh, filter actually meets the required standards by Doctors Without Board. Until that, we were not taking it out into the community. Um, now we're ready to take it into the community. These filters are producing about 15 litres per day. Um, ideally, we could produce, we would like to produce about 30 litres per day, but 15 litres is enough for one household for drinking water. Their stated requirements in Laos were about 10 litres per day. Um, and how long do these filters last? In the sense, you make one filter, and how long would they last? That's a great question. Um, if you drop it, it doesn't last very long at all. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. they're, they're, it's, it's a porous ceramic, so it's quite mm. fragile that, mm. in that way. Um, theoretically, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily get consumed during use. Um, there's nothing. There's no chemical that is depleted or anything like that. But if we look at the cross structure of one of the ceramic uh, filters, we will see that there's a whole bunch of holes that eventually get filled up with bacteria. Um, we are we are working now to develop a maintenance regime so that people can put it back over the fire after they finish cooking in the evening and burn out the the bacteria, providing we get the temperature high enough to get rid of the carbon and low enough to not change the structure of the ceramic. Then actually, in theory, it can keep on going. Mm-hmm. Um, other ceramic filters have been used in the field for more than two years and they're fine. So we're talking about a significant amount of time. So basically though, it's like a, a, a sieve in some ways, filling up with dirt and then you're hoping to be able to renew it again by burning out that dirt? Is that exactly, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And, and what are the costs of these filters? Okay, so if we look at the cost um, produced in a village, the, the inputs are local labour uh, and local materials. Uh, assuming that a labour rate in Laos is a couple of dollars a day and the materials are available, then you're talking about the order of, say, $10 to produce up to half a dozen filters. Very cheap. But keeping in mind that, that those costs, are they're actually tied to the local economy, so it just, it just slots into the local economy. If I contrast that with uh, an alternative method, for example... If we, were to rely, if we were to build a kiln and kind of rely on a, a factory production, we'd be looking at about a $20,000 startup cost to produce these filters. In the end, they still come out quite cheap, but it's a $20,000 startup, and that, that moves it beyond the realm of any microfinance business. So we're not using a kiln to fire these? There's, there's, it's all stuff already within the community? Well, um, if there was a potting tradition that was already, that were already there that could achieve, achieve the right firing profile and the right temperatures with a the kiln, they could use it. But actually, in Laos, there's a, there's a traditional firing method. It's actually kind of fascinating. Um, they can achieve a, 
a reliable temperature at the right, at a reliable even temperature at the right temperature without using a kiln. I can try and describe it over the radio because uh, it is kind of fascinating. Um, it's if you can imagine a, it's a bit like a barbecue. Um, there are a few layers. The bottom layer are a few rocks. Over the top of that, they place kindling of a certain size. It's very very specific because they want to get the right temperature and it's got to be even. The rocks are placed there so that the draft can come in underneath the wood and and fan the fan the flames. Over the top of the wood, they place the upturned uh, dry pots. Uh, they're placed upside down so that the the flame can touch all of the the pot at that temperature. We're talking about an 800 degree firing. The temperature the the heat is actually transferred from the fire to the pot through the flame contact. It's kind of important when you want an even firing temperature. Over the top of that, they place uh, rice straw. The rice straw actually uh, burns out during the firing process and forms something like a fiberglass bat. So it insulates the temperature and it, it insulates the heat and keeps the temperature in. And providing there's not uh, rain or there's not strong winds, they're able to get a very even temperature. And uh, speaking of descriptions, I just realised we've been talking about these fantastic filters, but what does one actually look like and how do we get the water out of it? I'm assuming there's not like a little tap on the front or something like that. Well, um, if we look at it, we can break down something that delivers clean water. In this regard, we can break it down to the filter and we can break it down to kind of the the water storage uh, pot. So if we look at the filter, in the beginning, we were just uh, working with this this potter side by side. And in, in the beginning, my job was just to help her to understand that it would be possible to create a porous ceramic. So we were making something the size of a coffee cup just for her to kind of get her head around the process and refine it. So once uh, the first effective filter she was using looked a bit like a coffee cup, maybe had four to 600 mils of capacity and were more or less cone-shaped. That wasn't going to filter much water. Um, she then was able to produce a two-litre pot uh, that you could uh, hold the right way up. That looked a bit like a salad bowl. It, once again, that, that, that didn't filter enough water. So in order to uh, make it an effective filter so we could get the right flow rate and to be uh, produced in the field, we changed the design a little bit, which meant that we had two, two buckets or two pots, one on top of the other. Uh, in the top uh, pot, there was a hole in the base. Over, the, over that base, we would seal an upturned filter on top and... That, that allowed us to have a much higher water column above the filter so that we could increase the pressure and increase the flow rate. Providing we can get an effective seal between the filter and the pot, uh, there was no problems. Actually, sealing that was quite a, kind of interesting because if you're looking at appro- appropriate materials, what's available in the local community that would provide that seal? We tried lots of things. In the end, we settled for a thong piece from a heel. Heel piece from a thong. <laughs> Sound like something else there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, and with enough pressure, we're actually able to get a waterproof seal. Mm-hmm. Underneath that, there's a there's a there's a pot. Now, if they've got taps locally, they're welcome to use them. It just means uh, it's just important that if they don't have taps, they can still have something else, mm. and they use uh, dippers or something else. Yeah. So this is a, an absolutely fantastic filter we've got here. Where is abundant water at at the moment? We're taking it to to developing countries. Okay. Well. Um, on the ground in Laos, we have a uh, we have we have a we're developing a training centre uh, outside of just on the outskirts of Vientiane, and from there we are looking to train uh, local trainers so they can go back to their village and set up small businesses. That, that that's in Laos. We've had expressions of interest from uh, parts of Africa, uh, parts of South America, and Indonesia, and really would like to be able to help them. Um, 
But as I said before, with such a small organisation, there's limited. Um, it's actually limited, quite limited what we can do. I think the best thing we can do is uh, develop this uh, process and this this rollout methodology on the ground in Laos, and then make that freely available to those elsewhere, and just through partnerships and networking, um, provide clean drinking water that way. And how about within Australia? Are there any applications, for example, within the within Indigenous communities, where they could be using this technology? <clears throat> That's a great question. I'd actually forgotten. Um, I've been I've been quite, kind of sobered to see the health and water statistics coming out of some remote Indigenous communities. Um, I'm not sure, have, not having been there myself, I, I really don't know what sort of um, technology focus they have there. I know that there are Indigenous potting traditions. In fact, for the last six weeks, I've been working with a local Indigenous potter at the Urana Centre at CIT, working with Janet Fieldhouse and her students and actually transferring this knowledge so that they can actually now make water filters. Um, and there's been interest there in using it as kind of a handicraft, something that's interesting. Um, and Janet has led me to believe that there are pottery traditions in outback Australia that would be interested in learning this process from her once she has mastered it. That sounds fantastic. Um, yeah, there's uh, one more thing that I always uh, think that, like, uh, you know, when we talk about global problems, I mean, uh, fresh, clean dr- drinking water, or not even just drinking, just fresh water resources are uh, such, I mean, they're depleting at such a fast rate, and yet one doesn't see the kind of dialogue that, you know, should be there. And uh, why, why do you think that is in the sense that why, are, you know, why are government authorities, don't they have that this foresight that this, this could be one of the biggest issues that uh, human beings face? Good question, isn't it? It's a bit like the climate change debate at the moment. Um, I really don't know. I mean, it comes back, do you, do you, do we wait for governments to do something or do we say as individuals and people we can vote with our feet and do something ourselves? Um, I, I really don't know why. I mean, there's a whole bunch of geopolitics going on there. Um, I myself, uh, decided to get involved with Abundant Water because I could see that there was a technology there that made sense. It addressed a lot of the issues that were being that I saw on the ground in Laos with the community development. Mm-hmm. It's something that I thought I could make a contribution to, and I just decided to to, to, to go with it. And I think that as people, we don't really need to wait for uh, for governments to kind of give us the green light. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if 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 we want to set out and actually kind of address some of these problems ourselves, and enough people vote with their feet, grassroots movement, then maybe it doesn't really matter. Well, how can people get involved with Abundant Water and uh, start moving those feet and making the change? Interesting plug, huh? Was I that transparent? (laughs) Um, Okay, well, we have a website, uh, www.abundantwater.org. Now, we're actually uh, building a project model based around Wikipedia. For those, as I'm sure you're aware, but for those who aren't, Mm -hmm. Wikipedia allows anyone to make a contribution, anyone to come in and write a magazine, an encyclopedia article. Thank you. Now, we've taken that model and said, hey, why not? If, if this is the kind of project that people want to get involved with and we, the community has a diverse range of skills, all of which we can make a contribution, why not create a project where anyone anywhere can make a contribution to completing a project on the ground in the field? We're taking that approach. So we challenge you to find something that we cannot work with. Uh, you know, people have come up, filmmakers, uh, speakers... Uh, craftspeople, a, a range of people now from around the world are finding, you know, they have five minutes on a Thursday, they can contribute something. Uh, 
Uh, locally in Canberra, we have a fundraiser coming up on the 3rd of July. Uh, it's 10 to 12 Cohen Street above Bingley. Please come along and bring your friends. So I'll just say, clear my throat here so I can uh, actually work for a change. Um, just related to that, uh, Sonny, um, this discussion does remind me of a series I did see on the ABC uh, a couple of years ago about a great industrial uh, achievements of the world, and one of those was the establishment of the sewer systems in London uh, because what had happened is that uh, in some places in London, groundwater was being extracted uh, through use of a hand pump, and that um, led to like, massive cholera outbreaks because, uh, like, um, it was... We have very close uh, to the very, very primitive uh, sewer outlets uh, there in operation at the time. And it really is, um, well, helpful to note there's only just like a couple people who can actually kind of, well, start the reaction going. I mean, one guy looked at uh, the actual medical cause of why this cholera was taking place and another uh, decided, well, what we need to do is uh, take the effort out of uh, these areas and uh, actually uh, make sure it's... Uh, well, probably, re- probably remove it rather than just relying on the ancient uh, Roman-era uh, type of drainage systems that, that happened at the time. And it was through actions like that that so much, well, improvement in people's quality of life uh, came about. So it is possible. Mm-hmm. And you're listening to Fuzzy Logic here on Community Radio, 2XX 98.3 FM, people-powered radio. And don't forget, you can subscribe to Community Radio and... Uh, the station on the air because um, the station brings so many programs to so many different uh, individual and community groups. It's definitely worthwhile. The subscription rates uh, for basics, that's students, concession cards or healthcare card holders, it's $30 a year. Premier uh, subscription is $55 a year, that's news to me. Uh, a 10-year subscription goes for $250 and a lifetime subscription, which lasts as long as you do, it goes for $500 and really is worthwhile. Now, this is really interesting. Um, I'm only just uh, looking at uh, the subscription rates here on the 2XX uh, website. There's musicians slash community artists. That's $85 a year. A community group is $150 and corporate subscription is $250. So it's really good to see that um, there's these extra subscription ca- categories. Um they can, uh, where you can uh, make, make a contribution to the station. And also, subscribing to 2XX uh, means uh, you can also uh, take part in quite a few discounts at uh, numerous uh, camera businesses around the place and also uh, be eligible for any uh, prizes uh, the next time that the uh, station is having a radiothon. I think there'll be one fairly soon. It should be very eventful. I think the most important part of subscribing is uh, we get to continue producing fantastic shows like Fuzzy Logic every Sunday. And that's what you're listening to now. We've got Eamon Pallavi, myself, Broderick, and Sunny Forsyth joining us in the studio today from Abundant Water. We've been talking a lot about the water filtration techniques that Abundant Water uses with their clay filters. But, I mean, are there other options for people out there to start filtering stuff? Oh, there certainly are. Um... And there are a lot of appropriate, simple uh, techniques out there. As I was mentioning before, uh, with the problems such as clean drinking water, it's 5% technical and 95% social. So if we just look at all the technical um, approaches for a little while, um, there's a very effective one called SOTUS, or solar disinfection. And that's where they can take a 2-litre Coke bottle, as long as it's clean and uh, not too clouded, and then leave it out in the sun, and the UV light will actually kill off the, uh, the bacteria and the microorganisms. 
as long as it's out there for six hours, it's not too cloudy. Um, obviously, there's boiling. Uh, there are uh, many uh, different little um, chemical treatments that you can, for example, stir into a, a a bucket of water and actually take the sediment out and uh, kill off the bacteria. They're, they're quite effective. Uh, once again, they've got to be brought in from the outside, though. Um, and things as simple as bleach. Yeah. So I suppose then the, the big question, why why is abundant water working with these clay filters? You know, there's 50 million different systems out there, I'm sure. What's so important about this one? Well, great question. Um, and to be honest, um, I think as as long as you engage the local community and you are helping them in, in, in the way that they would like to work, then it doesn't really matter what you do. I mean, for example, I uh, when I returned to Laos, um, I've been asked to help out with a... Uh, a rainwater catchment or a clean drinking water through um, providing rainwater tanks. Um, and I think that that done the right way can also be very effective. Uh, the emphasis on why why the water filters um, are the thing that we focused on is it allows us to work with the local community to kind of empower a response from within that community so you get a local business person driving the solution rather than me from the outside coming in and imposing that on the locals. And any anywhere that you can provide that same kind of response like what we're talking about, the Barefoot College and that sort of thing, it, it, I think it's all good. So when you're going out to these communities, um, I'm having a guess here, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, levels of science education and that sort of thing would be reasonably low. Um, are you actually teaching them the science behind it? What, what level are you going into it with them? Wow, fascinating question. And you've asked me on air, so... Um, <laughs> no, it's, it's great. I mean, uh, I'm actually working... If we look at Laos, I mean, it, it, uh, as an example, it has about four, somewhere between 40 and 50, depending how you look, ethnic minorities, ethnic groups. And I, I bring that up because each group will have a slightly different uh, emphasis or a slightly different worldview, and education and science whatnot can play varying roles in that. Um, the, the largest group, the Camus, um, I'm actually working with the Camus Research Centre, and we're looking at finding a way to engage communities who don't have a don't have the germ theory of bacteria mm-hmm. in as part of their, their, their view of the world mm-hmm. and it's quite a challenge um, there are there's a, there's a lot of field work and research that goes into communicating you know messages for social change and making um, leveraging local beliefs and and, and, and the local worldview uh, but then you know, it, it can be quite specific to the local community. Uh, to give you an example, um, I was looking at uh, clean drinking water in a in a village in north of, in the north of Laos, and I was speaking to the village chief, and he was telling me that they boil the water because there was limescale in the water, and the limescale was coming out on the pot. So it was like this this uh, this mineral deposit on the outside of the pot, and he said, "We can see that boiling is good because the bad stuff comes out." So. We can see that if you provide a tactile, tangible uh, feedback mechanism, people can make their own decision. But without that, and you can't see bacteria, then how do you communicate that? That's something that we're working on at the moment, and it probably is going to be community by community basis, whether it means taking a microscope out and showing people that there are things underneath, um, or providing a presence-absence test so you've got a a solution that changes colour. It's probably going to be different, and uh, we'll see what happens. Oh, actually, uh, Sonny, just a very quick question. Uh, I'm originally from an area which has uh, its rainfall 
very, very seasonally dependent. Um, so mm-hmm. certain places, I, I'm not sure if uh, Lau would uh, account the situation, but a lot of areas that are heavily dependent on seasonal flows, I mean, like if all the rainfall comes in like a monsoon or something, I mean, is that a challenge that um, uh, that you encounter uh, in your field? Yes, I mean, and I'm, I'm sure the weather's a little different in Lau than where you came from, um, but they have a wet season and a dry season. And in the dry season, it doesn't rain very much, and in the wet season, it doesn't not rain very much. Um, so if you're talking about uh, rainwater catchment, for a while, for example, uh, in, in, in a few months you need to be able to capture enough for the whole year. Or um, if you're using wells, then the wells will be recharged and then you're, you know, they're going to be sitting, lying stagnant for you know, a number of months. So in a place like Laos, actually the, qu- the quantity of water isn't so much of a problem. It's, there's enough rain in those few months that they're able to capture enough. But at the end of the dry season, the water quality can be a real issue. Um, and so the treatment then kind of uh, does vary depending on how far they are from the last rain. And other things such as if you've got uh, a lot of uh, animal waste on the hills around the, the rivers... And with the first flush, uh, flushing, uh, the runoff from the first couple of rains, that will then flow into the rivers. People then can get sick there. So it, it, it does kind of peak and, yeah. Um, that's something I used to find out, because I'm from Towns originally. I used to do uh, research in the Burdekin River, just south of there. And every time the, the wet season come along, just seeing like the massive amount of, of uh, cement and all, all, the, all the other stuff, that like the first wave of an outrush mm. will create, I can definitely appreciate uh, the, the challenges that you face. Yeah, and I think uh, a lot of it, uh, as you mentioned, has to do with social and probably cultural problems. Like, uh, you know, even in developing countries, I mean, uh, the problem is getting the water. Like, there's no resources. You have to walk miles and stuff. But, you know, people, I don't think, give so much thought to the quality of water that they're consuming. And, uh, you know, I think that has a lot to do with just pure ignorance. Because, obviously, I mean, at no given point of time, it's not as 100% of the people fall sick. I mean, it will always be like, you know, 10, 15, 20%. So they probably just think that, you know, that's the way nature works. So I think ignorance is a big, big problem. Yes, I have I have spoken to, to villagers and I've asked them if they ever get sick from the water. And they say, no, I don't get sick from the water, but I get sick when the weather changes. <laughs> and so I have to be careful there because <clears throat> my job is not to go there and change how they're thinking yeah. or to impose something else on. Because, you know, sure as the day is long, I, that, that will fail and that's really not the approach we're taking. Mm-hmm. So the question becomes, how do we work with a different understanding or a different set of beliefs and still provide the same health outcomes. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely fascinating, really, I suppose. And, and they'd be learning in a, a very different way to the way um, we learn in the Western world. My immediate thought when you're talking about seeing the bacteria was of those uh, disinfectant ads you get on the TV where you have the, the cartoon mm-hmm. bacteria. And I, um, I, I, look, I, I wonder, you know, whether something like that would help, whether the children would be convinced by that or whether that would just be so abstract for them to, to be able to understand. Well, I guess if, uh, if anyone who has access to that kind of uh, material is listening, they could probably send it in and we can give it a go. You know, we can run an experiment. That's quite scientific, isn't it? So you, you really are still experimenting out in the field and, and working with new ideas and new... Um... Well, well, rather than new ideas, um, it's not quite that speculative. Um, let me just take it back. We have a knowledge bank of people who have been working in community development for a very long time. Collectively, there's probably 50 years plus knowledge there. And so everyone has seen, as, has seen effective projects and they've seen not so effective projects. And so it's taking the lessons learnt and, and applying similar lessons from similar communities 
to build a, 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 a positive or successful model? Um, there's just one thing I want to add, I mean, which is slightly digressing from the topic, but uh, the fact is that uh, freshwater consumption, I mean, for human consumption, I mean, it's, it, you know, it, it's it's not that much, actually, a lot of freshwater is used in agriculture and industry, so it's a pity that even though, you know, freshwater required for human consumption is quite low, uh, the world still doesn't, I mean, there are like a billion plus people probably who don't have access to fresh and clean water, so it's quite a pity. And certainly, Pallavi just added that uh, the pricing mechanisms which are used, um, say, for agricultural use, domestic use, can often be uh, very skewed. So quite often, the true cost of water isn't mm-hmm. being, well, passed on to the consumer and actually yeah. putting in those market mechanisms mm-hmm. that can help you make uh, well, m- far more responsible use yeah, of yeah. this and very important industry, resource. I mean, so much water, fresh water is used in industry. I mean, it's... Well, it's been absolutely fascinating this morning, Sunny. It's been great to have you in. I look at my clock and we're approaching 12.30, which means we might need to finish up. But before we do, one more time, if anyone has been inspired by what you've been saying today or just wants to be a part of it, what can they do? Okay. Um, go check out our website, uh, www.abundantwater.org. Um, see see what other, see how other people contributed see what uh, what has been done if anything strikes a chord send me an email my details are on the site um, we have a fundraiser on the 3rd of July come along see what it's uh, see what this uh, Canberra grassroots community is uh, is doing uh, it's quite vibrant at the moment it's been a real pleasure to be part of that that is in uh, 10 to 12 Cohen Street above Bingley in Belconnen Fantastic. Well, I will certainly be trying to make it along and uh, hopefully our listeners will check out the website to see some more about abundant water. Absolutely. Well, just to take us out, uh, we just have a couple of uh, dates in science history. Quite a couple of interesting anniversaries happened uh, in, the, in the world of science during the week. On the 20th of June 1819, the US vessel SS Savannah arrived in Liverpool in the United Kingdom. She was the first steam-powered vessel to cross the Atlantic, although most of the journey was made under sail. On that day in 1840, Samuel Morse received the patent for the telegraph. Mm-hmm. On the 18th of June 1928, Amelia, uh, aviator Amelia Earhart became the first woman to fly in an aircraft across the Atlantic Ocean, though she was a passenger on that uh, voyage. Uh, and also on that day, uh, in um, the STS-7 uh, space shuttle mission, astronaut Sally Ride became the first American woman into space. On the 15th of June, 1785, Jean-Francois Pilat de Lozier, uh, co-pilot of the first ever manned flight in 1783, and his companion Pierre Raman, became the first ever casualties of an air crash when their hot air balloon exploded during their attempt to cross the English Channel. And I used to be at the Australian Transport Safety Bureau, so definite appreciation of air safety. And on the 14th of June 1962, the European Space Research Organisation was established in Paris, later becoming the European Space Agency. Well, one last bit of advertising before we finish up would be for our show next week. Rod and Nissa are going to be in the studio uh, at 11.30 next Sunday talking to Dr. Margie Baum. Now, Dr. Baum is from the Institute for Applied Ecology at the University of Canberra, and uh, her research looks at processes um, controlling flows of materials between the atmosphere and living organisms, uh, particularly looking at air pollutants. So it's going to be another interesting look at maybe the air next week rather than the water and how uh, pollutants are affecting our air that we breathe. Yes, perhaps in future shows we could have uh, fire and earth to uh, (laughs) add to those elements under under discussion. What about ether? Well, now, now we're getting into to technical stuff. <laughs> but then again, you find that on a science show. Well, uh, well that's it uh, from uh, Fast Logic for another week. So our very, very special thanks to Sunny for appearing today. 
Thank you. And also very special thanks to Pallavi and Broderick for appearing on as well. Another fun show. Our pleasure, yeah. <laughs> okay, and uh, I've been Eamon, your host today. Thank you for listening, and hopefully you can join us for a uh, really uh, fascinating show, which will be appearing on next Sunday on People Powered Radio, 2XX 98.3 FM, from 11.30am next Sunday. So I hope you have a great Sunday afternoon, and from all of us here, have a great week, and we'll catch you next time.